This is the Go Pack Podcast with your host, Jessica Curtis. Welcome to the Go Pack Podcast. Lots of things to talk about today from digital strategy with Ori Renat, CEO of Urban Legend, to State Senator Jen Kiggins, who just won the Republican primary in Virginia's 2nd Congressional District, facing incumbent Elaine Luria in November, and some words of wisdom from former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich on building an American majority. Ori Renat, CEO of Urban Legend, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So why don't you go ahead and tell everybody that's listening a little bit about what Urban Legend is. Sure. Urban Legend is a tech platform for influencer marketing. And we empower creators or influencers to talk about the issues they care about, issues, not products, and get paid for the results they drive. Advertisers use our platform to launch campaigns, driving audiences to take particular actions, and they also only pay for the results they get. Gotcha. Big picture-wise, what do you think people tend to get wrong about digital? I think they overcomplicate digital communications. Digital is actually incredibly simple. If you keep in mind that at the other end of the phone or the other end of the computer, there's a person and you talk like a human being to other human beings. Digital teams that repost press releases or try to get people to move from Twitter to reading a long PDF report, they're going to fall short because they're not starting from the assumption that the person they're trying to reach is a human with human-like behavior, and they're not talking to them in an authentic way. But as long as you're starting with authenticity and human connection, you're going to do fine in the digital space. It's just like talking to somebody anywhere else. It's just a different tool. You know, it's funny with the legislators that we deal with here at, at GOPAC. I, over the years, have seen a fair amount of them that don't have any digital presence. What do you say to those people that don't interact on that space or in that space at all? The only thing worse than that are people who do it because they heard that they're supposed to and expect that simply by having a Twitter account, they're going to reach people. And so not having a digital presence is bad. Having a nominal or check the box digital presence is worse. And a lot of people think that to be good at digital, you need to be on all platforms reaching everybody. You don't. What is the place that you can authentically create content that is compelling, that makes people want to engage with you, and that you have the resources to focus on and sustain in an authentic way? You know, a state level elected official trying to maintain six or seven different social accounts while also doing their day job is not going to be successful. And so focus is really important. What platform is your favorite and and which would you recommend to a state legislator or, or someone that wants to run for state office or local office? Which one do you recommend? It depends so much on what audience they're trying to talk to and who they are and where they can be authentic and engaging. Some creators, just like some elected officials, are just not dynamic and not compelling and not engaging on camera. And so maybe Twitter is a better place for them to focus. For others who want to be making video and want to be talking, you know, to the camera, maybe TikTok or Instagram is a better place to focus. It depends so much on the creator and also on the goals. What's one thing all communicators should keep in mind? Unless you are a massive brand in the middle of a PR crisis or an institution with the power of, say, Congress or the White House, if you're in the middle of something that is naturally captivating attention, almost nobody cares what communicators in the traditional sense have to say. The reason the job of communicator exists is because people don't naturally already care. And successful communicators figure out why people should and how to get them to care. Communicators who are less successful start with the assumption that the thing they're talking about is so important that everybody must naturally be interested. And that's a false assumption in almost all cases, whether you're a brand or a state-level elected official, 
the assumption that the audience is already interested is something I think most communicators get wrong. Well, you mentioned the brand, and I would argue even even in, in some capacity as an elected, you are the brand. How does branding work, if you could tell us, kind of in the, in the political sphere? I think it works similarly to any other industry with a little bit more nuance in the sense that the audience is a little bit more targeted. There are visual elements making sure that there is a visual identity and a visual language is really important. Creating content that feels on brand, meaning not out of place in the context of everything else that person, that elected official, that candidate is doing is really the starting point. And that's everything from fonts and logos to types of content created, while also having the flexibility to experiment with new things. When I was in media, I used to work for The Atlantic. We used to talk a lot about delivering on the promise of the click, meaning when you ask somebody to click or open or like or share or watch, you're making them a promise. You're promising them that it will have been worth their time. A good digital brand is about consistently meeting the expectation you set. And so if you say, click here for the most fascinating video you've ever seen, and it's a boring video, you just lied to your audience. You made a promise and you didn't fulfill it. That's a bad brand. So I think most of the branding is around delivering on the expectations you set when you ask for that engagement. So what in your in your mind makes a good digital strategist? Someone who's relentless in their focus on the audience. And a lot of times, especially in organizations, nonprofits, think tanks, trade associations, there's this mantra or almost a starting point that you know digital is part of cons or digital is a subset of the larger effort. I think good digital strategists are able to demonstrate, first of all, that almost every interaction now is a digital interaction. Everybody listening to this podcast is consuming it in the digital space. A good digital strategist is able to demonstrate that and demonstrate why starting with the platform and the distribution mechanism and thinking about things in a digital first way are really important. And a good digital strategist is an advocate for their audience. You know, says to the brand or person or group that they're trying to help distribute a message for, let's keep our audience in mind first. The audience is the priority, not us. You've worked on a fair amount of campaigns and in, in a bunch of different places. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the most interesting campaign that you have worked on? Sure. When we were Working on an effort to combat the opioid crisis, we realized that generally speaking, public health messaging has been more often than not a complete failure and a complete waste of money because it comes across as either inauthentic or unengaging or simply confusing. There were a series of ads for something called Take Back Day, DA Take Back Day, where people are encouraged to bring back unused medicines. And these ads were prominently featuring the DEA logo and the DEA brand to the point that the message of what you're supposed to bring back to dispose of safely was completely lost. We launched a campaign that tried to fix those issues and be a lot more authentic. And it was a user-generated content campaign where the audience was invited to share stories of how they've been impacted by the opioid crisis. And then those stories with the permission of the person who shared them were turned into ads for both TV and digital, driving people to consume more stories and share their own. And so it built a growing cycle of engagement and awareness and interest. And the messengers were naturally authentic. What's one piece of advice you would give to candidates running for office? And we, we kind of touched on it before, but what's one nugget of advice you'd give candidates running for office to improve their digital strategy? Don't overdo it. Do less, but do it well. I like that. 
Ori, thank you so much for joining the GoPack podcast today. Hopefully, um, at some point in the future, we we can get you back on uh, for another round just as technology and, and digital changes so quickly. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Today, we have Virginia State Senator and 2020 GoPack Emerging Leader Jen Kiggins joining us. Jen, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me today. You won the Republican nomination for Virginia's 2nd Congressional District and will face Democrat incumbent Elaine Loria this November. How'd you do it? <laughs> it was a great victory. It was uh, The victory was especially sweet. Uh, we, we worked our tails off for really 14 months. I mean, we kicked off last April and uh, had an amazing ground game. Uh, just a wonderful group of, of interns and volunteers uh, and, and even my husband and I, I mean, we all were, were door knocking, door knocking, door knocking, and really just getting out of the community, kind of like what we did in 2019 for the state Senate race. That was a contentious seat in a very competitive district. And we worked our tails off on the ground, you know, just getting out and talking to voters where they were at, at the civic leagues, at the church groups, you know, in carpool lines and, and at their doors. So so I think that was uh, probably our, our biggest asset and something that I learned the value of, you know, in 2019 when I ran. And then, you know, our we had a lot of great backings from, from uh, a lot of great endorsements, both locally uh, with elected leaders and former elected leaders and, and a lot of support from party leadership up in D.C. And, and sitting members of Congress. So that was certainly helpful for getting our message to voters because that's not an easy task. You know, we we were up on TV pretty early and, and up on television for about six weeks and in people's mailboxes and sent out about, you know, six mail pieces and did radio and, and digital. And and uh, so those things unfortunately cost money, but uh, fundraising was was an important component of, of what we where we worked hard, where I worked hard uh, and allowed us to get our message to voters. So uh, we did that. And then we we had the Democrats playing in this race. So about $600,000 they dumped uh, into congressional District 2, really to prop up a farther right-wing opponent of mine who was un- probably unelectable. And they knew that. And they knew that that was really their chance to keep this seat uh, was to have a a Republican win who who was not me, who they felt like they could defeat in November. So we saw them not only running a, a smear campaign and an anti-Jen Kiggins and lying about my voting record and really confusing voters, but then also really propping up a candidate who uh, who would have been very easy for them to defeat in November. So they, they Democrats are doing that in top tier races around the country. Uh, it is wrong. Uh, that was most of our battle the past just three weeks trying to educate voters about, hey, you know, be cautious and, and careful what you read because you're getting inundated with mail and TV. That's that's not accurate. So uh, they're going to do that. They'll do that again. You know, that seems to be their new shtick as of how they're they're using the just excessive amounts of money they have. They're now playing in Republican primaries, and that's wrong. It was a combination of those things. It was a great victory, and uh, couldn't have done it without a lot of support from a lot of people. And we're we're so excited and happy for your victory and, and, you know, obviously hope to celebrate with you here in November. Why don't you go ahead and just tell our listeners a little bit about Congressional District 2 here in Virginia, what kind of the area it is and, and what your um, voting demographic tends to be? Yeah, so uh, in CD2, we just, you know, with redistricting, got uh, much better for us. It, it was originally about R plus one, which was pretty, pretty purpley C, right? Pretty 50-50 split down the middle. And with redistricting in the new lines, we we went from R plus one to R plus six, which is great news for me. We lost uh, Norfolk, uh, which was a historically blue 
part of the district and we lost all of the peninsula. So the parts of Newport News, Hampton uh, into Williamsburg. Uh, but we kept all of Virginia Beach, which is where my state Senate district sits, which is nice. And it's a it's a really good common sense part of the district. And we have all the eastern shore. Uh, and then we adopted parts parts of Chesapeake, the majority of Chesapeake, and then all of Suffolk and all of Franklin, Southampton, Isla White. So uh, it's a little more rural of a district, but it's a lot more conservative and it's a lot more Republican. So the Democrats are very worried. Uh, they, they should be. Uh, and they know that uh, of all the seats in Virginia, of all the congressional seats, this is probably the most winnable this year. Uh, and uh, we just need to get all the Republicans out of their homes to vote. You know, the new parts of the district don't know that that they can actually vote for a Republican that can win this year. They've had uh, Bobby Scott or McEachin, uh, you know, and they, I think they some of them gave up voting because they felt like uh, those were hard incumbents to defeat. But this is the year we need them. And we saw them show up, you know, last November, the uh, more southwestern kind of rural parts of the state, which we're, you know, we're, we're aching into with the new lines. So uh, we need those guys to, to vote and to get excited about uh, being a part of, you know, winning district. Absolutely. Your background is so interesting to me. So beyond beyond being a state senator, how do you think that along with your experience as a Navy helicopter pilot and a geriatric nurse practitioner, how, how has that helped prepare you to win in November? And I, I might mention also Elaine Luria is a, a veteran of the military as well. So how, how has all of that experience kind of culminated into you getting the big W in November? Yeah, so I'm a Navy veteran married to a a former F-18 pilot, so a military spouse. I'm the mom to military kids and the daughter of a of an army veteran from Vietnam. So, uh, so military is is a very important piece of who I am, and just that 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 kind of call to service of country has always been important to me. But Elaine Larie is as well, like you mentioned, and then I, I'm a mom to four, so and and she is as well. Uh, and then being a nurse practitioner uh, has really just provided kind of a, an empathy quality, I would say. I mean, my, my mom's a nurse, my brother's a nurse. I practice in geriatric primary care. So I take care of your, our oldest Americans, our greatest generation, and it's a privilege to participate in their health care. But it's also a, a kind of a voiceless group or a group that needs more advocates. We don't see a lot of advocates for our frail elderly. So it's it's been a great honor to, to be a voice for them on the state level. And, and I'm excited to do it on the federal level as well. But I bring kind of all of those, those facets of my life from from being a, a veteran to you know a mom and a military spouse and a healthcare provider and, and a state senator as well. I mean that that's an important piece of, of I think who I am as a uh, hopefully future member of Congress. I've learned a lot, you know, in on the state level. I, I never held elected office before my state senate you know job. So but I won in a year that gosh, that was a, a rough year, 2020 and 2021, we were in the minority and we had a super democratic majority in the House, the Senate, and the governor's mansion. Virginia. So just sitting through that kind of danger and insanity of one party progressive political rule really uh, was a was a just an education on uh, on the you know how dangerous that way is to govern a state, but also a country. We see that same the same fight happening on the federal level, and now we've got one party running the house and really the Senate and in the White House. And, and it drives the progressive radical agenda that the Biden administration is, owns with pride. And, and uh, we've got to balance that power. We've got to balance that power in Congress. But so kind of all of all of those things have kind of formed me into the person I am. I, I use all of my backgrounds when I'm making decisions and when I'm, uh, you know, legislating and leading and 
And, uh, and I think this year, there's just a real opportunity for Republican women and for veterans uh, and for minorities. You know, we're, we're doing a great job of really expanding our tent as Republicans. And, uh, and I look forward to just to, uh, to being a part of, of that team and using all my background. Absolutely. You are, you are the, the shining example to me of what it is to have a servant's heart. That is so awesome. So uh, you mentioned earlier, you basically were on the, on the campaign trail for 14 months, uh, working up to primary election. Day. Along that journey, what do you think you found to be Elaine Luria's big, biggest weakness amongst voters in Virginia as you went door to door and talked to them? And kind yeah. of kind of beyond that, how will you connect with voters on that issue? So I think Elaine Luria, Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden, really most of the Democratic Party is very misguided right now as far as what Virginia voters and what American voters are caring about. Uh, you know, we've got Elaine Luria sits on the January 6th commission, for example, and, and she really highlights that. And, and kicked off her her bid for re-election, you know, on January 6th and has made that kind of a cornerstone uh, of her campaign. But I've not knocked on a single door nor talked to a single voter at a civic league meeting or anywhere else that says, you know, that that's the issue I care about is what what the January 6th commission is doing. What the, what the voters are caring about is is the economy. And we say it all that, you know, the economy, economy, economy. And it's gas prices. And every single person wants to complain to me about gas prices and grocery prices and and how it's impacting their ability to pay their bills and to save for their retirement uh, and to really just keep their businesses running. I mean, even at the polls, I had a, a, a man pull up in a in a pickup truck and he said, you know, I have a contracting business and I just paid $225 to fill up my truck. You know, this has got to stop. So that's what the voters are caring about. And that's what my job will be is to tie all of these these reckless policies disastrous policies, really, and what the Joe Biden administration has done to them, to the economy. I mean, we see it, I think it's most reflected in the gas prices, but the grocery prices and, and shortages of things like food and gosh, our workforce shortages. I mean, but every single reckless policy that Joe Biden has put in place, you know, the Democrats need to own that this cycle. I mean, and, you know, Elaine Luria votes with Nancy Pelosi and with the Joe Biden's priorities in you know, 98% of the time. So she has a voting record that ties her so closely, you know, to Nancy Pelosi, to Joe Biden. So that is my job is to just make the voters understand that all of those things go together. Uh, you know, the disastrous policies are all in the ballot this November. And the second district, they go by the name of Elaine Luria. So if I can get that message to voters and they show up at the polls because they too are so just upset about, you know, what's happening in their pocketbooks, because that's where everyone feels it the most. Uh, I think we're going to have a great turnout. We're going to have amazing victories throughout the country. Absolutely. And I, I mean, just to mention it here in Virginia, and, and, and it made national news last November here with Glenn Youngkin winning um, as governor of Virginia. The momentum was crazy, but, you know, tie, tied into a lot of those things that you mentioned, and, and particularly beyond that, the school choice issue. Y- you mentioned redistricting earlier. How do you think it's going to impact Impact your race in November? I think very, very good. I, you know, we spent some time during this primary educating the new parts of the district that they were in the district and, and that it's hard to educate voters in general. And that's why, again, why fundraising is so important. But uh, that's a hurdle that we 
we, but you know, the Democrats will be helping us do that as well. Elaine will need to educate people that, hey, you guys are now in the second district. We need those people to come out. But again, just the new lines, it's uh, it's much more Republican. So, so it worked out in our favor. You know, we've got 11 congressional seats in Virginia. Four of them are currently held by Republicans. Uh, and with the the big wins we had last year with with Governor Yunkin and Winston Sears and Jason Mears and flipping the Virginia House, you know, we should absolutely have more than four congressional seats right now. We should have six and really seven, if, if not more. So on the ballot this year, the second district is by far the most flippable, the most winnable. I'd say after that, probably the seventh and then the 10th, but we will do our parts down here. I mean, they they know this, they know they're in trouble, which, you know, we, I would love to think that they're going to back off and give up and say, well, this, but that's not what they do. They'll, they'll double down and spend probably close to $10 million is what, is what they tell me, Elaine Luria will, will have. Uh, so, you know, we'll try to go head to head. It's a little harder for, for some reason, but, you know, raising money as Republicans, I feel like we, we try to keep up and sometimes it's hard to keep up head to head with them, but we'll work harder and spend smarter. And I think just with the what's going on nationally and just kind of the atmosphere and people being frustrated, I think uh, it will definitely uh, go well in November for us. Absolutely. And we look forward to celebrating with you um, when when you win big here in Virginia, too. Jen, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank thank you for having me and for your questions. And I look forward to everyone staying, just staying tuned and in touch with the campaign. You know, our, our website is www.jenforcongress.com and check us out, follow the race. And it's definitely going to be a great victory in November. Absolutely. Senator Jen Kiggins, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And with no further ado, part two of an American majority, not a Republican majority, a four-part series outlining the potential for a dramatic shift in the American political and governmental system. Let's listen as former Speaker Newt Gingrich outlines lessons learned from President Ronald Reagan on building an American majority. Let me talk now about lessons from President Reagan. I should say, by the way, that I first worked with President Reagan when he was governor of California came to Georgia in 1974. We had a chance to be together. I was running for Congress and losing. It was during Watergate. But he was very generous and spent time teaching me how he does his speeches, which shaped the whole rest of my life. So I feel very close to President Reagan. But it's interesting because as I thought about it, to really understand the American majority that we can build, we have to understand the one that emerged to support President Ronald Reagan But to do that, it's essential that we go back and think about what Reagan had learned from President Richard Nixon and the emerging massive anti-left majority that first appeared in 1972. You know, Nixon has had a very hard time being understood because Watergate and the left's hatred of him sort of overwhelms everything. And yet in the years preceding Nixon's presidency, left-wing values combined with big government bureaucracy and massive income transfers to create a disaster. There were nearly 160 riots in the summer of 1967, and the Black Panthers openly called for the assassination of police. At least 19 police were killed. Leftist activists committed more than 2,500 domestic bombings in 1970 and 1971. five a day. Rational people started to react to the chaos. The development of a new American radicalism to replace the New Deal coalition of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt was captured brilliantly in Tom Wolfe's 1970 article on Radical Chic and his other essays parodying 
the left's absurdity. Theodore White, in his Making of the President in 1972, argued that the radical Senator George McGovern found it impossible to appeal to mainstream Democrats because the liberal ideology had become a liberal theology. The earlier FDR liberal politicians had been able to compromise and to consider public opinion and practical realities. The new theologians of the Church of Left-Wingers were rigid in their positions, and those positions were totally unacceptable to a substantial number of Democrats and virtually all independents and Republicans. Furthermore, the rise of the hardline leftists was connected to the rise of big government socialism in President Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. As Charles Murray and Marvin Olasky outlined in their two books, Losing Ground and the Tragedy of American Compassion, it was the Great Society which broke with historic American norms in favor of left-wing ideological stubbornness. So the rise of big government socialism and radical left-wing culture in the late 60s and early 70s began a dramatic shift in political support for popular, conservative, pro-American ideas. Now, Nixon had been through a really tough series of races. He had a virtual tie in 1960 to Senator John F. Kennedy and lost. Then he had a shocking loss in California to incumbent Governor Pat Brown. Finally, he'd won election by a stunningly narrow margin in a three-way race in 1968. Nixon only got 43.4% of the vote barely beating Democrat Vice President Hubert Humphrey, who had 42.7, seven-tenths of a vote difference, while independent Governor George Wallace had gotten 13.5%. However, just four years later, in 1972, Nixon won a stunningly big victory with 60.7% of the vote, wiping out Senator George McGovern. Nixon then won re-election by a bigger margin than Ronald Reagan would win it in 1984. Reagan got 58.8%, so Nixon's 60.7 was actually bigger, something which virtually nobody looking backwards can remember. Now, Reagan was watching all this, and he instinctively understood the need for an American majority rather than a Republican majority. Reagan's first great national televised political speech was the October 27, 1964, a Time for Choosing, a speech made on behalf of Senator Barry Goldwater's campaign. In that speech, Reagan clearly indicated he was speaking for more than the Republican base. Just listen to Reagan. I have spent most of my life as a Democrat. I recently have seen fit to follow another course. I believe that the issues confronting us cross party lines. In Reagan's own race for governor of California in 1966, he outlined the case for welfare reform, lower taxes, and combating left-wing radicals on academic campuses. He did so as a citizen candidate, reaching far beyond the Republican base. In his first race, Reagan got 57.5% of the vote to Governor Pat Brown's 42.3. That was an increase over Nixon of 8.7%. Remember, Nixon had lost just four years earlier to Governor Pat Brown. Reagan was broadening the base not just mobilizing it. Reagan continued to reach out to an audience far bigger than the Republican Party. In 1975, when only 17% of voters identified with the GOP, a narrow-based mobilization strategy 
was a guarantee of defeat. Reagan knew that, and he acted accordingly. He was following strategies of educating and leading the public, which he learned in his eight years at General Electric. This era of his life was captured brilliantly in Thomas Evans' book, The Education of Ronald Reagan, The General Electric Years, and the Untold Story of His Conversion to Conservatism. And I recommend the book highly because even though I'd worked with Reagan for years, I never fully understood his strategies until I read Tom Evans' book. At the 1975 Conservative Political Action Conference, Reagan called for the kind of boldness he had displayed in his first governor's race. Listen to Reagan speaking in 1975. A Republican Party raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels, a banner instantly recognizable as standing for certain values which will not be compromised. Yes, we must broaden our base, but let's broaden it the way we did in 1972. Because those Americans, Democrats and Independents and Republicans, are still out there looking for a banner around which to rally. And we have what they want, what they're seeking. But they don't know that. And sometimes I wonder if we know it. Reagan's efforts to broaden from a Republican majority to an American majority continued. Consider the opening of his speech to the 1976 Republican National Convention. I'm going to say fellow Republicans here, but to those who are watching from a distance, all those millions of Democrats and independents who I know are looking for a cause around which to rally and which I believe we can give them. As the Republican nominee in 1980, Reagan continued to follow a base-broadening strategy and worked to bring his party with him. I participated in the first Republican Capitol Steps event on September 15, 1980. I was the House Republican organizer collaborating with Republican National Committee Chairman Bill Brock to get it done. Never had a presidential candidate joined with his party's congressional candidates to pledge specific actions. The historic nature of the day was captured by David Broder, whose entire column is worth reading. Broder wrote, quote, The implicit message of Monday's ceremony is that there can be only one government in Washington at a time, and that if voters want Reagan to lead it effectively, they have to go all the way with the GOP. That is an honest statement, and it is as commendable for the Republicans to dramatize it as it is risky. The House and Senate candidates joined then-Governor Reagan and then-Ambassador George H.W. Bush, and they had five pledges. First, cut spending on Congress as a signal to the rest of the government. Second, cut government spending and reduce waste, fraud, and abuse to fight inflation. Third, cut individual income taxes across the board and develop incentives for savings, investment, and capital recovery to put the country back on the road to prosperity. Fourth, encourage more private investment and permanent jobs, especially in our central cities. And fifth, strengthen our national defense. More than 250 incumbents and candidates stood with the Reagan-Bush team and made these pledges. The impact was clear on Election Day when the GOP picked up 12 Senate seats and won control of the upper chamber for the first time since 1954. No one had expected a Republican Senate majority, just as virtually no one would expect a Republican House majority in 1994. It was proof of the power of a tidal wave to exceed expectations. 
Despite the Republican victory, President Reagan continued to reach out to Democrats to create an American majority. On the key vote on his three-year tax cut, the centerpiece of his economic recovery plan, 48 Democrats joined with 190 Republicans to provide a majority in the House. In the Senate, 37 Democrats joined with 52 Republicans to pass the tax cuts. The term Reagan Democrats began to be used, and his appeal to independents and moderate and conservative Democrats was a key part of his success. President Reagan emphasized the broad nature of his coalition in his victory statement for the tax cuts. The victory we've just won doesn't belong to any one individual or one party or one administration. The victories, as a matter of fact, because there's been more than one today, are for all the people. A strong bipartisan coalition of Congress, Republicans and Democrats together, has virtually assured the first real tax cut that this country has had in nearly 20 years. And it has also removed one of the most important remaining challenges on our agenda for prosperity. This effort to broaden the base and bring together as many Americans as possible would continue throughout President Reagan's eight years in office. His debt to all Americans came through again in his farewell address in January 1989. Listen to President Reagan himself thanking everybody, not just Republicans. Ours was the first revolution in the history of mankind that truly reversed the course of government and with three little words, we the people. We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. We the people are the driver. The government is the car. And we decide where it should go and by what route and how fast. Almost all the world's constitutions are documents in which governments tell the people what their privileges are. Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. This belief has been the underlying basis for everything I've tried to do these past eight years. Reagan explicitly acknowledged the American people as the key to all his victories. He asserted, What few people noticed is that I never won anything you didn't win for me. They never saw my troops. They never saw Reagan's regiments, the American people. You won every battle with every call you made and letter you wrote demanding action. Today's Republicans have an opportunity to rebuild the Reagan-American majority. They would do well to study how he did it with simple, clear language. Tear down this wall. Evil empire. We win, they lose. Simple, clear, understandable, and to the point. We'll hear part three of Newt's series in our next episode, where he'll take a look at the contract with America that was a huge historical component in helping to win back a Republican majority in 1994 for the first time in 40 years. This has been the Go Pack Podcast. Learn how we're educating and electing a new generation of Republican leaders at gopack.org.